Lord, we do thank you so much for the wonderful nature of who you are. Thank you that what we've seen so far has shown us so many facets of your glorious character. And Father, we pray that as we look at these uh, three more facets today, that Lord, you would speak to us. You, you would lift our hearts in wonder, love and praise. Help us to get to know you better, that we would love you more, that we would serve you better, that we'd be more like Christ and that we want to live for you. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to anoint the words, anoint our ears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, my prayer and my hope is that as we have progressed through this series uh, so far of looking at God's character, that your hearts have been warmed by learning of the wonderful God that we have, that we, the God that we love and that we serve. We are so blessed to have such an amazing God. And I think the more we understand how wonderful he is, the more we will love him, the more we'll worship him, and the more we we'll want to live for him. Uh, I've said it before, I will say it again, so that uh, in case people are jumping in and not uh, online and hearing only this one, all of God's attributes are shared by all members of the Trinity, and they must all be held together in balance so that we don't have our theology in our theology, an unbalanced view of God. God is infinite in all of his attributes, so we must be balanced as we consider them. And I think it's a wonderful thing that God has no limits to any of his attributes, and he wouldn't be God if he had. So praise God that he is infinite in every area of his existence. First for today, I want to look at God's goodness. And I think that seems to me to be a natural follow-on from his love, his grace and his mercy that we saw last time. It's such brilliant news that God is good. And because we've previously seen that he doesn't change, that means that he is always good and is good in full and undiminished measure. The goodness of God means that he is the final standard of what is good. And that all that God is and does is worthy of full approval. The goodness of God means that he is the final standard of what is good. And that all that God is and does is worthy of full approval. Sadly, man approves of many things that do not deserve that approval. And we see that more and more in our society as ungodly practices um, are approved and ungodly laws are passed. But God is the standard of what is worthy and what is good. There is no higher standard of goodness than God's own character. And uh, his approval of what is consistent with that character. Um, and as the sovereign creator, he is the one who should and uh, is entitled to decide what is good. And as his created beings, we have no right to question what he says is good and what he says is not good. What is good is not decided by popular opinion, despite what the media may suggest. What is good is decided by what God says is good. And that should impact our, our approach as to what, uh, on what is accepted in society. 
even I think even our word good has become slightly devalued in that it's almost rather mediocre. It's sort of better than neutral, but it's not as good as best. But with God, he is the ultimate and infinite standard of goodness. So he excels in goodness far beyond our understanding. So I guess when I'm talking about him being good, I'm talking about him being extremely good and the best end of the scale of good. And we say so easily say that God is good, but perhaps we rarely take the time to consider just how reassuring it is that he is inherently good in himself. Just think for a moment, what would happen if he wasn't good? What if he was all powerful, but a tyrant? It would be awful beyond our imagination. But it is such a major blessing that he is good and eternally so. We read a little bit of that, that he's good in Psalm 119 verse 68, where we read, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. So often we say that God is good, but perhaps deep down we often doubt it because things aren't going the way that we want them to. But what we feel has not affected God's absolute and infinite goodness one bit. God can do, God cannot do anything that isn't fully and completely good because he's inherently good and he must act in accordance with his good character. It's to be more than theoretical for us because uh, we have Psalm 38, 34 verse 8, which tells us, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. It's not just thinking about it, not just hearing about it. Let's taste. It's, it's really partaking of his goodness. And when you think that Jesus tasted death for us because of his love and goodness, surely we should taste of his goodness in a fresh way. It was a full, for Jesus, it was a full commitment to death on our behalf. So let's taste of God's goodness daily and enjoy it to the full. When God created, uh, he completed creating the world and all that's in it, he declared that everything that he had made was very good. We saw that in Genesis 1 verse 31. But it couldn't be otherwise because God cannot do anything that isn't good. God is the source of everything good. James 1 verse 17 tells us every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And as God is the ultimate good, he is the one that we must seek for our own good. For us to go our own way, thinking that it's for our own good is folly because it's God alone who knows what is good for us and because of his goodness and his love for us, he set that out in his word, the Bible. And as we evaluate things according to how God uh, created us to do, to do, then we will approve of what he approves of and we will delight in what he delights in. I think we should follow the instruction in Romans 12 verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good 
and acceptable and perfect will of God. The world can see some things that are good, but a full appreciation of goodness according to God's viewpoint will only come by a renewing of the mind that is transformative. And that should be ongoing for each one of us. We need to be regularly transforming our mind according to God's word so that we, we approve of and we understand what is good in, according to what he, he considers to be good. And we can be reassured that God only does what is good for his children. Psalm 84 verse 11 tells us, For the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He will not withhold anything good from those who are his. The difference, of course, is he knows what is really good. We have our own ideas about it, but they're not always the same. And we probably all know the verse, uh, Romans 8.28. But this also reflects God's heart of goodness towards us. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And our human view of goodness is so often coloured by what we want to happen in a situation. But God sees the bigger picture and he has a higher view of what is good than we do. When Jesus was teaching on prayer and he gave his instructions on, on asking and seeking and knocking, he said that just as an earthly father, although fallen, delights to give good things to his children, so God, as the perfect father, will give good things to those who ask him. That's in Matthew 7 verse 11. And even God's discipline is evidence of his love and it's for our good. His goodness means that he wants us to grow, to be mature disciples. And his discipline is part of that. And as we grow and become more like Christ, uh, that gives us, as God's children, the challenge to do good also. Galatians 6 verse 10 tells us, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. And if we are growing more like Christ, we will want to do good and be an influence for good in the world, for God's glory. For the believer, God's goodness is a rich blessing. We know that he will always do what is good for us. And with good, his goodness sitting alongside his other attributes, we know that he has the power and the knowledge to bring that about. We know that God will never do anything towards us that is not good. And as we approach the return of Jesus, we see his good purposes for the earth coming towards his desired fruition. We'll be able to enjoy the bounty of, goods, of God's goodness for all eternity in his presence. That's going to be fantastic. But for the unbeliever, God's goodness actually is also a blessing because God still pours out many good things on every human. Everyone enjoys the benefits of sun and rain that God gives. And we've seen a fair bit of both this week. Um, we see the provision of God um, in produce at every harvest. And there's numerous other blessings that every human can enjoy. That shows God's goodness. But that also makes the rejection of God 
and his salvation in Jesus Christ all the more culpable when the day of judgment comes. It's good that all sin and rebellion is dealt, is dealt with by God, because we all feel that it's good for tyrants and criminals and so on to be punished. And as God has set the standard of what is good, we must accept that God's judgment of unbelievers is also good and right. So let's move on. God's wisdom. And God's wisdom means that he always chooses the best goals and purposes and the best means to those goals. God's wisdom means that he always chooses the best goals and purposes and the best means to those goals. I think this is linked with his omniscience, the fact that he knows all things, but it goes further because this characteristic of God means that his decisions about what he will do are always wise and will always bring about the best results from his perspective, which of course is much higher than our perspective. Um, I've heard someone describe wisdom as skill for living. It's more than knowledge, but knowing how to apply knowledge in life for the best outcome. And of course, with God, this is extended to an infinite degree of wisdom, so that his infinite knowledge is rightly and wisely applied fully for the whole of creation. That means that God never makes mistakes, but he does everything right and wisely. In Paul's closing remarks in Romans 16, verse 27, he says, To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Only God has true wisdom. But the more that we know of his character and his ways from the Bible and from walking with him, the more we will learn from his wisdom. Some versions describe God here in this verse as the only wise God. I guess given that he is the only God, that's arguably obvious, but he alone has full wisdom. And then Psalm 104 verse 24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. And some versions speak of God's creatures rather than his possessions. Um, but that reminds us that as his creatures, we are also his possessions. As God has created the universe, it was perfectly suited to fulfill the purposes for which he made it and for, and for the daily processes of existence. Even with the effects of the fall, it's still staggering to see the intricate complexity and beauty of God's wisdom in creation. Perhaps one of the greatest examples of God's wisdom is in his plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation is simple enough for a young child to understand. Both our daughters came to know the Lord at the age of three. They understood what they were doing, but they had to grow in their faith as they got older. And yet salvation is deep and complex enough to satisfy the most intellectual professor and leave him, leave him wondering in awe at the riches of God's wisdom and grace. And Paul discusses this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, um, verses 18 to 24, 25, I think it is. Yes, 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And the so-called wise people of the world often miss the truth of the gospel because they think it's too simple. They think it's foolishness. Those who in their worldly wisdom want to earn their way to salvation miss the truth that salvation is a gift of God's grace and it has to be received as that. And when we consider the nature of God's plan of salvation, it's packed full of wisdom. On the face of it, the various characteristics of God that we've been considering over recent weeks make it impossible for God's holy nature to be satisfied so that our sinful behaviour and nature can be forgiven if it's left to us. I mean, how can a pure, holy God have fellowship with sinful man? How can he deal with the fact that the punishment for sin is death, which automatically rules out him having fellowship with us because we will no longer be alive to enjoy that fellowship, given that he's eternal? God devised a staggeringly perfect and wise plan that meant his son coming to earth as a man to live a perfectly sinless life, born of a virgin, so that without the sin nature that has accompanied every other human birth, and then to live as a man and then die in our place, in that way, God's perfect character is satisfied. Our sins are paid for and we can be forgiven. More than that, we are born again with a new nature. We receive Christ's righteousness in place of our sinfulness, and thus we can enjoy fellowship and relationship with God. I think the beauty of God's wisdom in this is breathtaking. No human could possibly have devised such an amazing plan, but God did even before he created the universe and a single human being. And I think God's, the wisdom in God's plan of salvation is such, it's worth, worth of just a, a bit more consideration. If you want a, a brief summary of just part of the wisdom of God in his plan of salvation, consider his satisfaction in his holy nature that the price of our sin has been paid. We have redemption. We have propitiation. We have reconciliation with God. Jesus paid the ransom for our salvation. In Christ, we have proof of God's love for sinners. We have the judgment of the sin nature. We have the end of the law of Moses, the basis for continual cleansing and the basis for the removal of sins, even committed by the Old Testament saints before the cross. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, 
we have the judgment of Satan and all his followers. We have God's righteous, righteous judgment on sinners being graciously offered um, uh, and deferred until the right time. We have grounds in Christ for peace with man, God and in the universe. We become part of the body and bride of Christ. God's wisdom includes the national salvation of Israel and the establishment of the reign of Jesus in the millennial kingdom, followed by the pinnacle of God's wisdom in the glorious eternal state. These are just bullet points of the main facets of God's wisdom and salvation. But they're enough for us to study for a good while to grasp them. And yet it's still simple enough for a child to understand at its simplest level. The wisdom of this should take our breath away. It is staggering. And yet it's so glorious. And it's no wonder that Paul, after in, in, in his letter to the Romans, after giving 11 chapters of teaching on the riches of our salvation in Romans, he applies it to both Jews and Gentiles. And he said in his conclusion, oh, the depth and the, the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counsellor? Or who has first given to him and it should be repaid to him? God's purposes for salvation were given in embryo to Adam at the time of the first sin, but progressively revealed through God's choice of Israel as a nation, but within the intention of his love and salvation being available to the whole world. I think the wisdom of God in this is beyond our full comprehension. But hallelujah, we have eternity to rejoice in its fullness and its goodness. And then Paul looked at it from another angle in Ephesians 3, uh, 8 to 12. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God and created all things, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Did you notice verse 10 there? That it's through the church, and that includes you and me, you and me, that's us, that God's manifold wisdom will be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. What God has done in and through the church is shown to the angels in heaven. And that seems to apply to both the holy angels and the fallen angels. That is wisdom beyond our imagination, but it's glorious. I don't have time to develop this today, but we can see here that God's wisdom is infinitely profound and it's glorious. And it's in the light of this that it's hardly surprising that we read in Proverbs verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding and it's as we have a healthy reverence and a fear of God 
that we are at the starting point of his wisdom. It's no wonder we have such a chaotic society these days, as we see that our society has turned away from God and his ways, and the result being that there is no fear of God in most places. But for those who do fear the Lord, he does promise us wisdom. But obviously what he gives is his wisdom and not the world's wisdom. James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, familiar passage. It reads, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And what a privilege it is that God offers us even a small part of his wisdom, so that we know, we know how he wants us to live. But what folly to ignore his wisdom when our future for eternity is at stake. And clearly we don't receive all of God's wisdom, but what a blessing that he gives us generously and graciously what we need. We also ought to mention that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the word of wisdom, 1 Corinthians 12, 8. And there are times when he gives particular wisdom to suit the need of the moment and to encourage the church. James has more to say about wisdom in chapter 3, 13 to 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, which is the, the, the false wisdom there, but is earthly, sensual and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And here James says that our wisdom is shown in the outworking of how we live. Uh, you've got verse 13, that's the good outworking. Verses 14 to 16 shows us false wisdom, and that gets shown by our lives as well. And note in verse 15 how the false wisdom is earthly, sensual, and demonic. And doesn't that reflect the world, the flesh, and the devil of our daily spiritual battle? And that's in stark contrast to the wisdom that comes from above, which, as we can see in verse 17, it reflects the beauty of God's character. Any wisdom that we seek must be godly, and that involves a daily dying to self. And for the believer, God's wisdom is wonderful because we see God's amazing purposes for this planet, as explained in the Bible. And we have great reassurance that all is going to plan. And it's a very good and a wise plan. And as believers, we are part of that plan with an eternal destiny that's beyond our imagination. But what we do know from God's word is that it's very, very good. For the unbeliever, God's wisdom is that the sinner must face the God-decreed penalty for sin 
namely eternal punishment, because everyone outside of Christ has rejected the only possible offer of salvation that there is. God is entirely just in this, for in his love he's given every person the opportunity to escape his judgment. And then finally, I'm going to ask for your patience, it's, it's not much longer, but I want to look at God's patience today. And that means God's goodness in withholding punishment towards those who sin over a period of time. We read many times in the Bible that God is slow to anger, that he's long-suffering. And we have an example in Numbers 14, verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. But what beautiful patience is there seen? That God's patience cannot ignore the judgment that will come upon the unbeliever. Then we have another example, Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And both of these verses link God's patience or long-suffering with his mercy and or his grace. And obviously God knows the full extent of his purposes for mankind, and he's outside of time, so he's well qualified to be patient. He knows the end from the beginning, and he also knows that he will have the ultimate victory over all opposition to his plans. All those who oppose God and his people, who oppose his plans and his purposes, will be dealt with at the right time. But God is patient because he wants to give time for people to repent. And this picks up one of the purposes of God being patient and long-suffering. He delayed bringing judgment in the time of Noah while the ark was being built. 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. By whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There was grace and patience shown in Noah's day, for the people were wicked, they deserved punishment, but God held it back until the means of salvation was available for Noah and his family. And the same principle will apply uh, at the end of time as we know it, so that more people again have time to be saved. And we see that in 2 Peter 3, verses 7 to 9. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So for the believer, God's patience is a blessing. We've all needed, we all still need him to be patient with us. First of all, in coming to faith in the first place, and second, in dealing with us Christians as we have faltered and fallen many times. If God had decided to call time on mankind 50 years ago, 
many of us wouldn't have been born. I wouldn't have been saved. And but because we have eternity ahead of us, we can afford to take the long view of things, knowing that God will deal with everything that troubles us now in his good time. And we can and we should also be patient with others because God is patient with us. For the unbeliever, we've seen something of their problem already in terms of God's patience. He has and is giving them more time to repent. But the time is coming when he will judge the earth. And for each believer, their time to come, uh, their time to come to Christ as Saviour is limited according to the length of their lifetime or to Christ's return, if that happens first. God's patience, God's patience is infinite, as is every one of his attributes. But there's still a day coming that he's appointed when his judgment on the earth will be poured out. That doesn't mean to say that God will have run out of patience, but it means that he knows when it is right for judgment to come. It's truly wonderful that we have a God who is good, wise and patience and patient. If any of these attributes of God were missing, we would be in deep trouble. And as with all of God's attributes, it's well worth the time and effort to contemplate them so that we understand him better. Our faith and our trust in God will be enriched as we do so. So please don't just listen to the talk and go away and think, well, that was nice. Contemplate them, chew over them and really get them into your being. God will never let us down. He will never do anything that is not full of goodness and wisdom. And praise God also, he's patient with us. And in his patience, he works in us to make us more like Christ. And may we allow God to do his good work in our lives without hindering so that he, so that he has the glory and we become more godly disciples who are prepared to be a fitting bride for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these magnificent attributes of, of your character that we've seen this morning, that you're good, that you're wise and you're patient. Lord, there, is, there are such riches in these facets of your character. And Lord, we are thankful to you for them. It's, it's beyond our understanding, really, but we thank you that we can at least uh, scratch the surface and see these, the beauty of your character, the marvel of who you are, and that you deal with us out of your goodness, out of your, your wisdom and with patience. Lord, help us to understand you, you more. Help us to ponder on these things and to grow in our faith and in our reassurance that you are a really, really good God. Hallelujah.